Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. Uh, My name is Becca Stewart, and I serve as the pastor of spiritual formation here at DCC. I'm so glad to be back teaching with you this morning. Uh, So about a week ago, my husband and I invited some DCC friends over to our house for dinner. Um, My husband typically serves as like a a group facilitator for our Peacemaking Pathway experience, and so we had his group over to our house, and my husband, Chad, had them each write down a question on a piece of paper uh, that we would then ask and have everybody go around and ask. So, you know, we had him in our little cup, and I was pulling him out and asking them, and one of the questions that got asked, which I'm making the assumption was inspired by this season of teaching that we find ourselves in was this. Do you remember your dreams? You know, are they unusual or realistic? And we went around and we all shared about our own experience with dreaming. And it was fascinating to engage around this thing, this very bizarre thing that we all have experience with. And there was all kinds of stuff shared, everything from, you know, one person who talked about how they Um, have this happen often, that they will dream that they woke up and got ready only to have the alarm go off and then they realize that they haven't actually gotten up and they have to do it all over again. Or one person talked about how when she was pregnant, how she had what we'll call some wild dreams because what she said is inappropriate to say from the platform, but fascinating how perhaps hormones play into things. And one thing that we all got really stuck on was one person shared that whenever they eat a handful of almonds before they go to bed, they have crazy dreams, which seemed weird, and we kind of pressed them on them. And I want to say to you that this is the same person who asked this group, if this was the Hunger Games, who would you form an alliance with and who would you kill? (laughs) Which felt concerning because this was a peacemaking pathway group. But I dug in a little bit afterwards and uh, found out more about this whole almond thing. Have you guys heard of this? Are you aware of this? Apparently, many kinds of nuts and maybe like bananas have something in it called tryptophan, which serves as a precursor to the serotonin that causes your dreams to be really vivid and exciting. Who knew? Okay, one more dream I'll tell you about in the last week I had is I actually had a dream, and it was this morning, and I was getting up here to teach, And I was not very well prepared, which in truth is like my worst nightmare. So I got up here and I started to talk, and then I would be like, hold on just a minute. 
And there was a big partition behind me, and I would go behind it, and there was a desk and a computer, and I would sit for a little bit and create the next part of my teaching, and then come back around, and then I'd say a little bit more, and I kept doing that. And every time I'd come back around, less and less of you were here. It was terrible. So why am I going on and on? And sorry about that. I don't know the mic thing going on with me. Sorry about that. Are you going to help me? Here comes Dan. Do you remember that time I put Dan on the spot, but then he wasn't really coming? Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. All right. Back to dreaming. Why am I sharing about all of these dreams this morning? Well, if you've been tracking with us at all in this Advent season, then you know that we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, the birth narrative there in chapters 1 and 2, and in particular, paying attention to the elements that are kind of woven into that story of ways in which God speaks through angels and dreams and visions and signs. And so last week, we looked at Matthew 2, where it tells us that after Jesus was born, magi from the east come to Jerusalem looking for, as they put it, the one who was born the king of the Jews. But they had seen a star in the sky, which was a sign, and in response, they made the journey to worship this king. But Herod finds out about this, and he is disturbed because someone other than him is being called the king of the Jews. And so he begins to scheme to do harm to Jesus. After the Magi find Jesus and worship him, they are warned in a dream to not go back to Herod, but instead to return home by another route. And this is where we pick up this morning. So if you want to turn with me, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. And the page number there corresponds to the Bible that should be kind of in the, you know, underneath the seat in front of you or somewhere near you. So I'm going to read verses 13 through 18 if you would like to follow along. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. All right, so once again here in Matthew's narrative, an angel appears in a dream. Joseph is told to get his family and get out of town, to Egypt specifically, where they're supposed to go until told otherwise because Herod would be searching for the child to kill him. And so in the middle of the night, Joseph gets up, he packs his bags, he grabs his family, and off to Egypt they go, where they stay until Herod's death. But why Egypt? On a very practical level, at this time, a, a, a sizable Jewish community existed there outside of Herod's, uh, Herod's jurisdiction. So it made sense. But there's something more going on here. Isn't there always? In verse 15, Matthew tells that this going to Egypt fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then he goes on to describe a horrific scenario in which an evil ruler orders, orders, orders all the young boys to be killed. Matthew's beginning to do something here. 
that will continue as a theme throughout the whole gospel. He portrays Jesus as the new Moses. According to the Women's Bible Commentary, you see this throughout this gospel. Matthew 2 recapitulates the story of Moses. Just like in the book of Exodus, an evil king orders babies killed, and a special child, a savior adopted by a step-parent from a royal family, survives. And then like Moses, Jesus goes down to Egypt. He enters water when he's baptized. He faces temptation in the wilderness. He goes up to a mountain and delivers instruction, like in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? There are parallels throughout. Now, Moses was God's chosen leader to liberate his people, sent to Pharaoh with the message, let my people go, to bring them out of slavery. Now, if you know the story of the Exodus and the subsequent 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, then you know that although Moses led them out of slavery, it was another person who actually led them into the promised land. It was Joshua. Moses' aide and successor, and as Michael mentioned a couple weeks ago, Jesus is the Greek name for the Hebrew Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. From every possible angle here, Matthew is pointing to and propping up Jesus as the liberator, who both redeems from enslavement and guides into the promised land. Now, for first century Jews, this would have been very good news indeed. Although God's people were mostly no longer literally enslaved, they experienced other forms of enslavement as it pertained to life in the Roman Empire and among corrupt leaders like Herod. They were a people oppressed and in need of release. The idea that God would come in human form becoming just like them in order to become the kind of leader that would bring liberation, right? that would free from enslavement and guide into the promised land was better than good. It was great news. And not just for the world Jesus was born into, but for anyone who would come after them, finding themselves oppressed and enslaved. This is, of course, why liberation has been central to the African-American church's self-identity since its inception. According to Dr. James Evans, Jr., who was a professor of theology and black church studies, liberation is not just the missional thrust of the church, it is the essence of the church's identity, meaning... Liberation is not just what the church does, it is what the church is. Now, I don't know about you, but as a white girl who grew up in Kansas, Christmas and the birth narrative was never something I associated with liberation. Christmas was much more domesticated. Other than some dysfunctional family squabbles, it was pretty nice and tidy. The closest I came to linking Christmas to liberation was specific to liberty, And my understanding of liberties is something to be protected, which implied that they were automatic, already there. America was the promised land, and God had led us here. In this way, Jesus becomes a nice figurehead for affirming and protecting the freedom that apparently already exists. I was taught that the story of Moses and the Exodus was important mostly because it's part of the history of God's people, for sure, a prominent event. But I don't remember in the Christmas season ever really thoughtfully associating Moses and Jesus. And so although liberation was a concept that I could perhaps intellectually get as an actual, personal, embodied longing, it was very foreign. 
The idea that God became human to bring liberation was a nice idea, but not necessarily good news to the deepest parts of my being, or at least not in a way that I knew how to access at the time. As long as faith remained a very narrow, linear, primarily in my head kind of endeavor, this worked because that kind of faith wasn't something that invited me to get into my body. It wasn't something that invited me to really embrace my humanity. And this, coupled with being handed a faith system that held the belief that to be human is inherently bad, only served to reinforce my thinking, especially as a woman that my body is not something to be trusted, that my humanity is twisted, and in fact, Jesus came to set me free from this burden. Which is ironic, right? When the premise of the whole story is that God became human. God became embodied, or as Cole Arthur Riley recently put it, in Advent we remember a God who submits to the body of a woman, a woman whose body is capable of holding and growing the divine. Now, in a time where the people of God's very humanity was being diminished, God comes into the world in the form of a vulnerable baby through the body of a vulnerable woman to affirm the sacredness of our very being, our very bodies, our very flesh and blood, to liberate us, not from our humanity, but from enslavement to any system that says we are less than human and therefore unworthy of life and dignity. According to Dr. Evans, black theologians proclaim that God is the liberator who acts in history to set people free from whatever keeps them in bondage to a life which is less than human. Let me say that again. God is the liberator who acts in history to set people free from whatever keeps them in bondage to a life which is less than human. For many of us, we need to liberate Christmas in order for Christmas to liberate us. Liberate it from its domestication, liberate it from being a nice little tradition, liberate it from dogma, liberate it from consumerism, liberate it from being an escape mechanism. Christmas is not just a sweet little story. It's a revolution, and its rallying cry is, let my people go. In his book, The Liberation of Christmas, Richard Horsley says this. In contrast to oppressed people's internalized sense of subjection to and dependency on their masters, the infancy narratives present a striking case of God's dealing directly with the ordinary people. The divine will and action, moreover, is for their own liberation, not their further oppression. If ordinary people are valued by God, then perhaps they can value themselves. The ordinary people in the infancy narratives, moreover, display no deference to their rulers and have no apparent anxieties or hesitation about their own imminent liberation. The people in the birth narratives thus become paradigms or prototypes for later readers or hearers. Seeing that God helped earlier people who ventured to assert their freedom, they come to believe that God will help them as well and are able to take action in shaping their own lives. Okay, so that, there's a lot. That's dense, right? So I'm going to repeat a few of these lines for you. If ordinary people are valued by God, then perhaps they can value themselves. The people in the birth narratives become paradigms or prototypes for later readers or hearers. 
Seeing that God helped earlier people who ventured to assert their freedom, they come to believe that God will help them as well and are able to take action in shaping their lives. I am struck by the amount of agency that exists here in these words, by which I mean one's ability to act or move and how this ability seems to be connected to one's view of oneself. The birth narratives are not telling a story of a hero that swooped in and rescued a damsel in distress. In fact, the way in which God invites these ordinary people into the act of liberation reflects God's very high view of humanity and why this whole mission mattered in the first place. Not to mention that God's high view of humanity is what gives these ordinary people the courage to act with such boldness. And so, as Horsley says, the people in the birth narratives become paradigms or prototypes of people who venture to assert their freedom, believing that God will help them to take action in shaping their own lives. Cole Arthur Riley, in her book, This Here Flesh, puts it this way. Our liberation begins with the irrevocable belief that we are worthy to be liberated, that we are worthy of a life that does not degrade us, but honors our whole selves. When you believe in your dignity, or at least someone else does, it becomes more difficult to remain content with the bondage with, with, with which you have become so acquainted. You begin to wonder what you were meant for. Perhaps this was true for Harriet Tubman, who was born into slavery but escaped in 1849. If you're familiar with her story, then you know that she was not content, right, just with her own freedom. And over the course of 11 years, she returned several times to help free other slaves. And this freeing and bringing liberation to so many other people earned her the nickname Moses. Those around Tubman attributed her source of strength to her faith in God as deliverer and protector. And Thomas Garrett, who was a, a fellow abolitionist, said of her, I have never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God. And reflecting on her own liberation, she described how God's voice had urged her personally to seek her freedom by saying this, God's time is always near. He gave me strength and he set the North Star in the heavens. He meant I should be free. Well, I love this for lots of reasons, including that for me, it brings this teaching full circle. Harriet knew her own value. She believed she was created with the capacity and the spiritual authority to act. She trusted that she was meant for, that she was created for liberation. And she believed that God's timing was always near. She paid attention to the signs, to the North Star, as she put it. Her path to freedom was being guided by a God who actually interacted with her, who showed up in signs and wonders. Remember that the paradigm or prototype we were given in the birth narratives is not just about ordinary people taking action to shape their lives, but about ordinary people paying attention to the mysterious ways in which God showed up and spoke to them in angelic messengers and dreams and symbols like stars in the sky. And if you recall, even Moses' own path to liberation began with a burning bush from which God called to him and told him to remove his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. Jungian depth psychologist Bill Plotkin says that many of the pathways of the psycho-spiritual journey are rooted in metaphor and symbol 
dream work, deep imagery, ceremony, signs and omens, poetry and art. And no surprise, because symbol, as he puts it, is the currency of imagination, and imagination is the primary window into the soul. To add to this, David Benner in his book Soulful Spirituality says this, Carl Jung called these numinous encounters and made attending to them the primary focus of Jungian analysis. He argued that they hold unique potential for our healing and integration. The reason they are so important is that they point the way to freedom from our existential and spiritual isolation. They point to the possibility that in the depths of body, spirit, and soul, we are fundamentally one with the spirit, one with all that is. They penetrate the optical delusion that our identification with our small ego self represents. They give us a glimpse of the divine and of the way in which our own being and the divine are mysteriously interwoven. What would it look like for us to begin trusting the value of our very ordinary selves while also trusting that our own exodus, which literally means the road out, or the path to our own liberation will be illuminated by looking for and responding to the extraordinary that shows up in the ordinary. I have never personally seen a burning bush with literal fire or an audible voice, but I have seen God in breathtaking views and unexpected kindness, in old broken friendships reconciled, in the face of my newborn child, I have felt God in the warmth of the sun, in the exposure of a truth told, in the power of a well-asked question, and an attentive listener sitting across the table. I have discerned God's guidance through exploring my potentials and my limits, by looking for open and closed doors, by paying attention to things that stir up in me, like hope and fear and tension and relief. As Elizabeth Browning Barrett so famously wrote, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common a bush a fire with God. But only he who sees it takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. Moses Harriet Tubman reminds us that God's time is always near. He set the North Star in the heavens. God gives us strength in our limbs. We were made to be free. So I can't help but wonder this Advent season where you might be longing to be free, to experience liberation. What is keeping you in bondage to a life that is less than human, less than who you were created to be? And what are your signs? How is God getting your attention? As you consider Jesus the liberator who affirms the value of your humanity, and invites you to partner with him in the holy work of your liberation. How might you stay aware? How might you practice paying attention? Before we end this morning with the teaching time, I want to offer one possible practice for you to take into your day and into the rest of this Advent season. I've shared before um, from the platform that one of my favorite images in Scripture is that of God creating humans, which is found in Genesis, where the writer describes God like a master artist, taking and scooping up the dirt and sculpting this human body, and then leaning over and breathing into its nostrils the breath of life. 
And with this, this human becomes a living being. Have you ever considered that your very breath is a sign, a wonder, a reminder of a God who sustains us and exists not only around us, but in us, as our very source of life? Being aware of our breath can be a practice in becoming aware of God and of ourselves, and even of ways in which God may want to show us something and guide us. I've been doing a lot of yoga in recent months, and I'm always struck by the teacher's insight about, around bringing us back to our breath. They know that the human tendency when doing something hard or experiencing something intense is to lose focus on your breath and its cadence, right? to hold it, to cut it off. Even our very breath can tell us something about where we're at, how we're doing, and what we need in moving forward. Some of you are probably familiar with the ancient practice of breath prayer, where you take a short, repeatable phrase and you match it to your inhale and your exhale, and then you just repeat it over and over for any length of time. And you can make these prayers up, you know, based off of what you might need in that season or that moment, or you can look uh, for resources. There's a lot of resources out there about suggested prayers. You may have heard of probably the most famous breath prayer, the most kind of historical breath prayer, something called the Jesus Prayer, uh, which goes, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Now, if you're familiar with that and you think I forgot a part, many, many people are taught to pray that prayer to say, have mercy on me, a sinner, but just random side tangent fact here. That was actually not part of the original prayer. A sinner was added to that later. Beside the point. One place you can find some really powerful breath prayers is uh, from something called Black Liturgies. Are people familiar with this? Some? Damas? Um, Black Liturgies is a, by a woman named Cole Arthur Riley. And if you're not familiar, she's a black woman who speaks often to liberation and embodiment. And she's currently putting out some really, really good Advent content. And she recently offered up this breath prayer. You inhale and you pray and affirm God comes in flesh. And you exhale and you pray and affirm I will not forsake mine. And so in a minute, as we close out this teaching time, I'm actually going to guide you into just a short amount of time of getting to practice this, where you will simply just practice becoming aware of your breath, and on your inhale, you allow God comes in flesh to be your prayer. And on your exhale, you allow I will not forsake mine to be your prayer. Okay? Before I do that, I want to read you the last two lines of her book, this here flesh. This is how she ends her book, which is subtitled Spirituality, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. She says this, if it's freedom you're after, go marvel at the sky and then look down at your own marvelous hands. Rest your sold body with another sacred body and tell each other the truth. Your dignity cannot be chained. So if you would join me in a posture of prayer. And don't feel bad if you need to peek and look at the words to practice breath prayer. But if you want, you can close your eyes. And I just want to invite you to become aware of your breath. Perhaps slow it down. 
And as you become aware of your breath, become aware of the God who created you and breathed the breath of God into your very nostrils. That God is your sustainer, that every breath in and out is a reminder. And I invite you just to take a few moments and begin to align the words of this breath prayer to your inhale and exhale. God comes in flesh. I will not forsake mine. Just take a few moments and allow yourself to repeat that. God who comes in flesh, would we be people who know our own value? Would we be people who know we are created with the capacity and the spiritual authority to act? Would we trust that we are meant for liberation to be free? And would we pay attention to how you show up and lead us in our day-to-day lives, even in our very breath. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for engaging our teaching this week. Before you go, we want to highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. Yesterday on December 10th, we celebrated our annual Pancakes and Pajamas event. This year, we partnered with a local ministry partner, Joshua Station. Each year, Joshua Station sets up a Christmas store where low-income families can shop for Christmas gifts for their children and only pay $5 per gift. Parents who are a part of Joshua Station desire the dignity of providing for their families. Through the generosity of DCC, we were able to purchase over 300 gifts to stock the shelves this year. That's nearly $7,500 that was financially given to support low-income families around Denver. Thank you for your generosity. If you'd like to learn more about Joshua Station or our other ministry partners, we invite you to explore Project Renew's website at projectrenew.org. Project Renew is the peacemaking and justice initiative of DCC and allows us to support 44 local and international partners every year. To stay connected with all that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email or download our DCC app. Again, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. And now may you, our siblings in Christ, continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we might be a healing presence in our world. Go in peace.